Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Now, regardless of whether we're in a pandemic or not, the holidays bring families together. And with these gatherings, painful memories oftentimes surface and difficult conversations happen or are avoided. But at the center of these conflicts are the need for forgiveness and healing. Now, come to think of it, it's not just during the holidays. Issues related to forgiveness are everywhere. If this resonates with you, stay with us as Michael welcomes back popular author and president of Proverbs 31 Ministries, Lisa Turkhurst. Lisa's personal life has been on display the past few years, and her journey of forgiveness has been one that has inspired many to pursue wholeness and reconciliation. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael and Lisa discuss her latest book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget. Now, the subtitle of the book really provides the essence of their conversation. Discover how to move on, make peace with painful memories, and create a life that's beautiful again. As you'll discover, Lisa has spent over a thousand hours studying the biblical foundation for forgiveness and wants nothing more for you and her readers to walk in freedom and healing. It's our prayer that you discover what forgiveness is, what it isn't, and that forgiveness is not about forgetting. It's about listening to the way you now share your story. And the way you share the story of what happened will determine where you are in the healing process. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Lisa Turkhurst, welcome back to the Restoring Soul podcast. Thank you so much. It's a complete honor to be with you. We've talked before and we've known each other for a couple of years, but I'm really thrilled to be talking about your brand new book, Forgiving what you can't forget. You have lived and continue to live as a woman who writes out of and ministers out of the reality of your own story, as opposed to, hmm, what would be an interesting topic to write about? That's not how you get to write, right? That's right. I, um, you can always know the issues that I'm dealing with because instead of approaching my topic like an expert that has something to give to other people from my area of strength. I really look at where am I struggling because I know I'm going to spend two years studying on that topic. So um, I was definitely struggling with forgiveness, a lot of misunderstanding about what it is and what it isn't, a lot of assumptions about what it's supposed to do and when it's supposed to take place. So um, yeah, I started from my place of weakness for sure. Your story has been very public, and you went into detail uh, in your last book, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, and you also share about that uh, in this book. Why have you chosen to be so public and so authentic in your writing? Well, I would love to pick up this big banner of, you know, like, I just wanted to be heroic with my story, and um, that's not 
the banner that I can pick up though, honestly, I think a big part of what we walked through, I never wanted this story told because I never wanted this to be my story. And I also still cry over what happened. I'm not at that place where I wake up and go, thank you, God, for letting this happen, because look at all the ministry that's come out of it. I still cry saying, are you sure that this is supposed to be my story? I don't want this to be my story. And yet at the same time, I am determined to see some good come from it because it's healing to me to see that the pain was not pointless. But, you know, why did I decide it? Actually, I didn't decide it because I live a public life. Our story, after holding it private for 18 months, it was going to leak out. It was slowly coming out through the rumor mill. And I just knew I did not want my story told in rumors with assumptions and false pieces getting woven into what was already incredibly painful. So I decided to get ahead of it and tell it with truth to quiet down the rumor mill. And that was simultaneously my family's best day and our worst day, the day that it all went public. I guess it was our best day because shame no longer had a hold on us. And we no longer had to figure out who knew and who didn't know. Everybody knew. So now we just had to walk in that. And it was the worst day because everyone knew. And it was such a painful story. You know, I can honestly say now when my family and I step into a room, I think we are some of the safest people in that room Mm -hmm. because people know that we understand deep pain and that we're not going to run from it. We're not going to judge somebody else who's in it, but we will share experiential wisdom that we've gained along the way. This wasn't a, a, a major point, as I recall, in your book, but you repeated it like this thread through every chapter. And the phrase that stands out is you can't edit reality. And that if you choose something other than reality, that you won't get better, that you won't be free. It's going to burden you. And it seems as if we have a real temptation in Christianity that Jesus will make everything better. And through the thread of your books that I'm familiar with, that's certainly not always the case. And in fact, he invites us to a cross. Yeah. So I think I must have, and you know, you're the professional here, Michael, so you could tell me, you know, if there's some psychological disorder. And I I think most people know that you were also one of my personal counselors. So that'll leak out in the interview. So I'm just going to go ahead and bust it wide open. Okay. (laughs) I, I remember sitting in front of you so many times and saying, am I crazy? Am I crazy? You know, just because I'd been through so much where my discernment was firing. The problem with discernment is it doesn't give you details. And so when you have a discernment that something's wrong, but you're in relationship with someone who constantly tells you that nothing is wrong. And I think in the counseling world, you call that gaslighting. But when that happens, you start to feel as if you're crazy and that reality has somehow slipped from your fingertips. And it's no longer within your grasp and it's very dysregulating. And so I remember, I don't know if it was you uh, in one of our counseling sessions or another counselor I worked with, Jim Cress, maybe both of you, but I remember one of you said, mental health is a commitment to reality at all costs. And I thought, I want that. And so it started me on this crusade of not editing reality but accepting what was right in front of me as it is and not betraying myself that if I smelled smoke, I would say that is smoke and where there is smoke, there is a fire. And I'm no longer going to deny that what is real is real. And that became a very important part of my journey and not just walking forward, but also looking backwards You know, I say in my book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, grieving is dreaming in reverse. And what I mean by that is when we dream, we usually run into our future and look forward to all these beautiful things that hopefully will be waiting for us. And that's a dream, you know. But when you're grieving, 
it's like you're running backwards in time. You're dreaming in reverse when you're grieving because you run into your past to something that you loved very much. And you so desperately want life to be that way again. But because it's in the past, you cannot bring it to the today if it's no longer possible, if it no longer exists. And the unchangeable factor of things that were lovely in the past that no longer exist, unchangeable can feel so unforgivable. And so not editing reality was a really important theme in the message because so much of healing is accepting what is. Well, and we all know John 831, the truth will set you free, but I've often heard Christians talk about that explicitly in terms of God's truth in the word. But the truth that sets us free is the reality of who he is and how he works, but bumped up against our truth and our story. And uh, because I know Jim Cress, we, we both quoted that. Uh, I think it was Scott Peck who originally said that all mental health is the dedication to reality. And the first time I read that, I just thought of Jesus' words, the truth sets us free. But if I'm not bringing my truth to God's truth, then it's like two things that don't fit into one another. So all of your writing has that deep, deep ring, not just of authenticity, because we know Christian authors and speakers that will give a little illustration that's a little bit vulnerable, and it can be very appropriate, but you're writing about things that don't feel appropriate because they're so raw. So I just want to say thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. And, you know, about the truth thing, I hear today so many people say, I've just got to be true to myself. And I think they're hinting at, I've got to call what's in front of me reality. But where I would challenge somebody is that we all live a story and then we all have a story that we tell ourselves. And if you say, I just want to be true to myself, we have to make sure that we're being true to our most healed, healthy, and whole selves. And that's why what you're saying is so important in John 831 and 832, you know, it's the truth that sets us free. It, it is God's truth because his truth is never changing and never shifting. It doesn't rise and fall on feelings or moods. And so it's, it's crucial that we have a plumb line in our life to hold up our truth to the truth so that we can make sure we're not deceiving ourselves with some unhealthy perception or unhealed places in our heart. Yeah, that's a really important point. Even in terms of my reality or your reality, that the gospel says that there's always something deeper than that, that God's doing and that he's up to and how we're identified in Christ. I want to jump in just to the title as maybe a, a, a jumping in point for the actual forgiveness conversation, forgiving what you can't forget. And I love that because one of the, the questions as a counselor and therapist that I hear all the time is that very thing. What if I can't forget it? What if I'm still flooded with chemicals and anxiety and I can't sleep? But also the misnomer or the myth that forgiveness equals forgetting. And you deal with both of those in the book. Right. Well, I think people assume it's a biblical principle. You know, I, I'll hear people say, oh, you know, like the Bible says, forgive and forget. When in reality, the Bible never actually says that. It says that God will remember our sins no more. And Paul does say, forget what is behind and strain toward what is ahead. But it doesn't mean that we have to erase all memory of what happened in order to forgive. And actually, I'm not even sure that's biblical because if we forget the life wisdom that we've gained along the way, then we aren't able to use it to help other people. And it's a huge biblical principle to help other people with the life wisdom that we've gained. So here's where I've sort of landed with this whole notion of forgive and forget. It's not about forgetting. It's about listening to the way you now share the story. And the way you share the story of what happened will determine where you are in the healing process. And when you share the story, if you share a great amount of detail of how you're wounded or hurt, 
you're still at the very beginning part of your journey. And there is a place for that. It's called your counselor's office. (laughs) And it's wonderful to go and sit there and get all those details out. But then you can't live in your therapist's office. Like you you can't set up an apartment there and just tell that same story over and over and over and over. At some point, you'll know that you're healing when you share the story and you tell a basic version of what happened. But instead of using so much detail around the pain that was inflicted upon you, instead, you start sharing transferable experiential wisdom that can help other people. And so instead of how you were set back by that trauma, when you start sharing how you were actually set up to be a more effective, compassionate human and helping other people with your experiential wisdom, that's such a tremendous sign of healing. So not being defined by it anymore so that it's always there in the present somehow spilling out. But then when it does spill out, it's not with the details or the pain, but in a way that's on behalf of others. Am I hearing that right? Yeah. And, you know, I would imagine there are going to be some people who pick up forgiving what you can't forget. And they're going to have this expectation that the curiosity is going to be satisfied with all the details of what happened. But I feel like if you think about emotional nutrition, just sharing the details of what happened is like giving someone candy and expecting it to give them nourishment. It just doesn't work that way. And I never want to satisfy someone's curiosity because the real nourishment is in that transferable life wisdom, the experiential wisdom that you gain along the way. But I don't start out the book forgiving what you can't forget by wagging my finger and saying, you have to forgive. And here's all the information that I want to transfer to you. I can't start there because that's not where people are when they pick up a book like this. I start with the pain and I start with the resistance to forgiveness because that's where I was. And I think my reader more then they want to be taught at first. They just want to be understood. Yeah, I, I was not surprised because I know you, but I was so appreciative of how you didn't just talk about your journey with forgiveness as a struggle, but you literally used the word resistance. I resisted forgiveness. And that's so permission giving. And you're in touch with the pain of your readers because of how you've dealt with that yourself. And you unpack reasons for why we typically resist it. Can you talk about that? And first, actually, I had the thought, we're talking about forgiveness, and I assume that I know what forgiveness is. And other people have heard the word, and we pray it in the Lord's Prayer. But how do you define forgiveness? And how did you arrive at that actual definition of it? Well, I'm glad you're asking me this question. So let me tell you how I arrived at it first, and then I'll give you my definition for it. If people know me, they know that I don't write about things just from my opinion or just from my experience. I want to give my reader a real resource. So I spent, I don't know how many hours in counseling. I should add that up with you and Jim at some point, you know, trying to figure out how many hours of counseling I've done. But um, I do know I spent over a thousand hours studying forgiveness in the Bible. What is it and what is it not? And I'll confess to you that probably the first 200 of those, I was looking for the loophole. (laughs) Like surely God's command to forgiveness cannot possibly apply to everything from a small offense to mass murder and all in between. Like how can this one spiritual principle be the blanket that you lay over this vast chasm of hurt and pain that spans so much depth? Like how is that possible? And surely there are some things that are unforgivable, like surely the unchangeable is unforgivable. And so probably the first 200 hours, I was digging into the Bible, looking for God's loophole, looking for the exception. 
And it just wasn't there. I mean, God's command to forgive applies to all. Then I had to understand, okay, what is forgiveness? Because I always thought forgiveness was an unfair gift we give to the person who hurt us. Wow. And when you think of forgiveness as an unfair gift to the person who hurt us, then you can really start to get bitter about God's principle of forgiveness because it can feel like, wait a minute, I'm the one who was hurt. Like I'm the one who suffered. If somebody's got to do some heavy lifting here, it should be the one who caused all of this. Not me, not the hurting one, not the suffering one, right? And I think a lot of people look at forgiveness as an unfair gift we have to give to that person that hurt us. But then it occurred to me one day that can't possibly be what it is because God says to us, So many times in the Bible, give forgiveness as in Christ, God forgave you. And so I started to realize forgiveness is not something that I conjure up and muster up and then eke out to this person that hurt me. Forgiveness actually doesn't originate with me at all. Forgiveness originates with God. And as God pours out his forgiveness to me, I simply must cooperate with it and let it flow through me. And then I started to feel like actually forgiveness is God's provision to help heal the hurting heart. You brought up the Lord's prayer. You know, isn't it astounding that when Jesus was asked to teach people how to pray, I mean, this is like major, right? Isn't it astounding that he used over half the words of that prayer for confession and forgiveness? I don't think I would have done that if God says, teach people the ultimate prayer, how to pray. And Jesus meant us to pray it daily because in Matthew chapter six, verse 11, it says, give us today our daily bread, which is the first request of this prayer. And then the rest of the prayer is about confession and forgiveness, not being tempted by the evil one. And then another side note about forgiveness. And so it started to occur to me, I think Jesus intends for us to apply forgiveness, not just to to the hard and horrific things of our life, but I think it's supposed to be as much a part of our daily process as Mm -hmm. eating, breathing, sleeping, walking, talking, and forgiving. Like eating, breathing, sleeping, walking, talking, forgiving. I think that Mm -hmm. is the rhythm of life. But so many of us leave out forgiving. And so this is a long answer, but let me give you my ultimate my ultimate moment where I was like, this is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the minute that I drive a stake in the ground and I say, I deserve to stop suffering because of what another person has done to me. And if I attach my ability to heal to choices of the person that hurt me that they may never be willing to make. They may never be willing to say they're sorry. They may never be willing to own what they did. They may never be willing to change. And if I wait to forgive until they have done all of that work that I think they need to do, then I've not only allowed them to hurt me, I am now allowing them to hijack my ability to heal and move forward. So I have to detach my ability to heal from choices I have no say-so over, and I'm empowered to forgive. Mm. And it's not for that other person as much as it is God's provision to help heal my heart. And it's so freeing when I say, I deserve to stop suffering because of what this other person has done to me. So the only way to sever that source of suffering is through the power of forgiveness. That is unbelievable. I've never heard it framed that way. And I read the book once and there's not a lot of books that I read twice, but this is so well written and it's just so important to what I do as a therapist. I'm going to read it again, but 
first of all, it changes everything, the paradigm that you said. Instead of it being an unfair gift that I have to eke out, hopefully by you know Jesus' power, but it still feels like I'm flexing my moral muscles, that it's a gift that I'm given in Christ and that I give that gift to myself to free up my heart. That's right. And here's the really amazing thing. This is the life-giving part of forgiveness is that I can actually, in the morning when I wake up and I pray the Lord's Prayer, I can actually send forgiveness ahead in my day mm-hmm. and recognize that if I want to create an atmosphere of peace for my life, then I must bring the peace that I want. Therefore, I actually now send forgiveness into my day. Like I will send forgiveness to work. I'll send forgiveness to the coffee shop. I'll send forgiveness into the gym. Every meeting that I get, I'm just sending my forgiveness ahead so that when I walk in there and someone bumps into my happy, I will say, oh, actually, I have traded all that emotional drama for an upgrade. I have already forgiven you. So you do you, but just because you lay down an offense doesn't mean I have to pick it up, carry it with me and wound other people throughout my day. Just because you've invited me to an emotional drama does not mean that I have to attend. And it's so empowering for me to realize the very best time to forgive is before we're ever offended. And the next best time to forgive is right now. You know, what's beautiful about your saying, there's so many things. I have, just through my work as a therapist and a number of friends, I've read a lot of Buddhism and know people that are uh, Caucasian Americans that practice the practices of Buddhism. And through that and mindfulness, there's a practice where people will be still, and it's not to a presence of God, but just within themselves. And they will pour out forgiveness or compassion upon the world. And I've always been struck by that and then saddened that why don't Christians do that more? Because the fruit of the spirit is inside of us. And I've always thought of that as opening up a faucet rather than pumping a well, trying to work something up. And there's just such freedom in that, that you're making a choice and that there's intentionality of this is how I want to be in the world. And unforgiveness actually keeps you from that. That's right. And I've never studied any Buddhism or anything like that. But when I do look at the power of the Holy Spirit, I do see those words like the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And I think it is a beautiful practice for a Christian to determine. Sometimes I think as a Christian, I don't know if you feel this way, Michael, but Sometimes it it can feel like, I don't know if I really look any different than the non-Christians in the world. I mean, when I get offended, I get angry. I I react out of that anger. And, you know, sometimes I can look across the landscape and see like, wow, we're just as offended. We're just as angry. We're just as depressed. We're just as anxious. And I can start to feel like there's nothing I can do. I'm just a victim of my circumstances. And I get caught in this where I start to really feel like, uh, is this really making a difference? And so I'm trying to get ahead of that and saying, if I want peace in my life, then I must bring the peace that I want to step into. If I want the joy of the Holy Spirit, I must bring the joy that I step into. And I wrote about this in my book, Uninvited. I can have some social anxiety if I'm invited to a party where I don't know a lot of the people and shallow conversations make me a nervous wreck. And so I will go to the bathroom and just regroup and try to like survive the party. And one time I was invited to an author party And I'm sure people that are extreme extroverts, it's like your best day ever to get invited to a party like this. It was my worst day ever. And at one point, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I excused myself. And when I went up to the hotel room and in my hotel room, I laid across the bed and I just thought, God, I can't do this. I hate these parties. Why are you forcing me to live the life as as an extrovert when I'm really a pretty extreme introvert? And the Lord just really challenged me and said, 
Lisa, when you step back into that room and I want you to go back into that room, I want you to bring the acceptance that everyone is dying to receive. Don't walk around begging other people for scraps of love. You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live loved. So you walk into that party and you bring the acceptance, you bring the love, you bring the joy, and you will absolutely be the most popular person at that party because everybody needs more of that. And I can't say I did this perfectly, Michael. I walked back downstairs, went back to the party. And I remember I walked in and I was like, oh, where's the dude serving soda? Because he's paid to stand there. So I'll go talk to him. So I started with him. But then I just started walking up to people and saying, tell me your name. Tell me what book you've written. Tell me about it. And I brought acceptance into that room, not because people made me feel accepted, but because I was learning this practice of living loved, living from the abundant place that God's love is already in me. He loved me this much from the day he first created the first cell of me. It's not because I've done anything. It's not because I've accomplished anything. It's because he so delights in just the very thought of me. And if I live from that enormous place of how much God loves me, I can look so differently at people at opportunities, at hard situations, good situations, and all in between. And I think that practice of living love also helps us live a life of forgiveness. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> you're preaching. This is good. Wow. That that abundance versus what some have called a scarcity mentality. And would you say we, we don't have to have a quiet time seven days in a row or we don't have to have just led someone to Christ and gotten back from the mission field in order to have that abundance. That's an inner reality if we belong to Jesus. And we can step into that and to bring that into a situation. Yeah, I agree with that. And I know for me, though, it's so important for me to open up God's word and to check in with his word, because so many times he is giving me some kind of truth that's about to prepare me so that I can live this more effectively. And just like if my body went too long without physical food, if my soul goes too long without getting nourished in truth, I start operating in my flesh or operating in my own perceptions about life. It's amazing how life-giving getting into God's word is. So as I get into God's word, I always think, God, I know you're preparing me for something that you see coming that I don't even see coming. And I need an extra dose of your truth. And I'm so grateful. I've just paused and received that before I walk into the world. I have this little saying that my staff turned into a painting in our office that says, I must exchange whispers with God before shouts with the world. Mm, I love that. What are the barriers that you have personally wrestled with and as you've talked with other people to the process of forgiving? I think one of the biggest barriers is that we think that forgiveness and reconciliation always have to hold hands. And if the relationship isn't reconciled, then we think forgiveness is impossible. But as I studied forgiveness in the Bible, while forgiveness is a command by God, reconciliation does not always hold hands with forgiveness. And I think we have to understand that sometimes in relationships, it's neither possible nor safe to allow that person free access to our most vulnerable, tender places again. And if trust has been broken, Trust is not immediately reestablished at the moment of forgiveness. Forgiveness can happen early in the journey, but reestablishing the relationship is a long process for many of us. And sometimes reconciliation isn't possible at all. So is it possible to forgive someone and have zero reconciliation? Absolutely. And that may really surprise some people. Is it possible to forgive someone and still draw boundaries in that relationship? Yes. And I think some people feel like, oh, no, boundaries are very unforgiving. 
Well, no, they're not. Boundaries aren't to shove that other person away. Boundaries are to hold me together. And I actually think if you've ever read the verse where Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven, Jesus could not possibly mean that we are supposed to be in a relationship where someone devastates us emotionally over and over and over and over. I actually think that verse is a great verse to use as an example of how boundaries can allow us to create enough distance in the relationship to keep us safe so that from afar, we can forgive someone who refuses to change bad behavior or abusive behavior. We can forgive them, but there's enough distance there that they won't emotionally devastate us or destroy us in the process. Yeah. So that your heart can heal and therefore That's right. instrument for God. I love the fact that you had a whole chapter on boundaries because there's so much confusion around some of these very ideas that forgiveness means I don't have to set boundaries. I need to let this person harm me again, um, that I'm excusing or justifying what they did. And this just jumped out at me. I, I consider myself pretty knowledgeable about God's word. Second Timothy 3, 5, you put the passage in there in its totality, and it goes through this list of people to avoid. And it says abusers, uh, that some of these are abusers and flat out avoid them. And I, I just thought, how cool that God is so specific and particular to protect us. That's right. And I tell a story in the book about how much of a struggle it has been for me to not want to crawl up on the train tracks and save someone who is laid across the train tracks that I care very much about when I see the train barreling down toward us and how maddening it is to see that this person absolutely should change and they're not changing. And so you run up, they crawl back on the train tracks, you run up and you pull them off and then they crawl back on the train tracks and you run up and you pull them off again. But all the while the train is coming closer and closer and closer. And at some point, if I climb up on the train tracks to pull them off again, the train will run over us both. Mm. And I think in the Christian world, especially we have this notion of we are supposed to allow another person so much emotional access to our life that if they don't change, that we're okay with laying on the train tracks and both of us getting run over. And it's been such a paradigm shift to me where God is saying, if there are behaviors in this relationship that are causing you to get more and more unhealthy, if there is abuse, if there are addictions, you were never called to be the savior of the world. Your assignment is not to try to be Jesus to them. That doesn't make you more Christian. It's actually your assignment. Your very best thing you can do is to turn that person over to their choices and entrust God to be God. And just in a moment of vulnerability, Michael, you know, there were so many times in my journey with art that I was terrified of him hitting rock bottom because if he hit rock bottom, I was going to suffer consequences and my kids were going to suffer consequences. And I was terrified of those. But art will tell you the very best thing I ever did was to take my hands off and to tell him, I am no longer willing to work harder on you than you're willing to work on you. And I actually heard him on the phone the other day telling someone, I only wish Lisa would have done it sooner. And it brought freedom to both of you. It did. And that's the moment where I decided I can no longer make his healing the focus of the journey. I've got to heal and take care of myself. And that does not make me selfish. It makes me wise. Hmm. That makes me think of the passage in Colossians 3. I've spent a lot of time there this past year. And um, it says, therefore, as God's chosen, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. And uh, I've always heard that as taught, you know, you should be that way to others, but it says clothe yourself with that. And then the famous verse about forgive one another as the Lord forgave you and put on love over all of these. And that connection between in order to forgive, I have to be kind and compassionate to myself. And what do I actually need here? And I love the fact that you also made the statement in the book that you took the common phrase, uh, you have to forgive yourself and said, that's not in the Bible. And you weren't, you know, teachy or preachy about it. But I thought, yeah, it's not in the Bible. But what does that, what do people mean when they say that? And I think what they, what they're trying to do is I want to be kind to myself. I want to have compassion rather than beat myself up about this. And so if God doesn't condemn me, then I don't need to condemn myself or crucify myself. And I can have that compassion. And isn't it just totally counterintuitive how when we do that, a, a faucet of forgiveness opens up? That's right. And I think also when I've said those words before, you know, I just can't forgive myself. What I'm really saying is I can't let go of the shame and regret, or I can't feel like I can receive God's forgiveness. And so I'll phrase it as I can't forgive myself, but what the Lord has, has been working on my heart for a lot of years around this is that shame really is when we hold something not private, but secret. When we hold something in the darkness, the enemy reigns in the darkness and the enemy does such a job of making us not just feel like we've done something wrong, but that we are a sum total of all the wrong things that we have done and will never be anything more. Mm. And we're so afraid to bring what is hidden in our darkness. We're so afraid to bring it into the light. And we make so many assumptions of what will happen in the light. People will judge us. People will hate us. People will think that we're terrible. And some of that may happen. But it was my experience when the most shameful choice I ever made, and if people know my story, they know it was that in my early 20s, I had an abortion. And I did not think I would ever get it out from underneath the shame of that. And I remember I was invited to this, this little Bible study of six people. And at that point, it was the biggest speaking engagement I'd ever done. So this was not a small thing in my world. Okay. But the lady, when she called me the day of the speaking engagement and said, I know we were originally going to talk about this topic, but Lisa, would you just come and share your story? Hmm. And as I was driving there, the Lord was like, tell them, about the healing work I'm doing in your heart with the abortion. And I was like, no, I will be cast out. I will be stoned. They will go on Christianity today and I will be banned from the Christian community. No, 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 no. I was so terrified. And when I got there, I, I remember the lady introduced me and I had this moment where I had my notes in my hand and I had this direction by God to leave my notes in my chair and just go up and share what God was doing to heal me and, and forgive me because of the abortion. And it was a raging battle in my head. Wow. And I forced myself to leave the notes in my chair. And I walked up and I sat down in front of those six women and I had my head down the entire time. And I very hesitantly shared my story and I had tears dripping on my lap and I felt like I know what's going to happen. I'm going to look up and these women are going to hate me. And Michael, after about sharing for 20 or 30 minutes, I lifted my eyes and all six of those women were crying mm. and they all whispered individually, me too, me too, oh. me too. All six of them had been dying inside because they too had made the choice of having an abortion and they'd never told one another. They'd never spoken about it publicly. But when I went first, there was freedom that happened in that. And I think shame does such a number on people. So when people say, I can't forgive myself, I think what they're really saying is I can't get out from underneath this shame. 
And the only cure I know to get out from underneath the shame is to bring whatever it is out into the light, into the safety of one person. Maybe that's a counselor. Maybe that's a friend. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's just someone safe. Bring it out into the light and ask God, is there one other hurting human in this world that I could share this with as I pursue my healing to either help prevent them from making the same choice or to help them feel less alone and to share that it is possible to get healing in this. And there is something incredibly profound and healing when we see God take what the enemy meant for such evil and use it for some kind of good. And that is how I got out from underneath the weight of shame. And I was able to receive God's forgiveness like never before. Thank you for sharing that. I know that you have spoken about that and that is a public part of your story, but I know that it's, it's not always easy. Even if I share part of my story 20, 25 years later, and I am trusting that there's some people, whether it's around that issue or something else that are going to feel nudged to actually speak out. My friend Kurt Thompson in his book, Soul of Shame, talks about it as being known, that the antidote to shame is being known and letting other people in. And that's ultimately what God longs for, is not just for us to know him, but to let him know us, even though he already does. I have a final question, but first, I just just have this, like, I want to get your thought on this. You've been a follower of Jesus for how long? Since college? No, it was in my early 20s after college. Yeah. So yeah, an interesting story. I started working with Proverbs 31 Ministries to help with the marketing. It was just a little newsletter then. It wasn't the ministry that it is today. But I uh, look back on that and I know I knew facts about God, but I did not have a personal relationship with God. So people often ask me, what's one of my favorite testimonies that has come out of Proverbs 31? And I'll say my own. (laughs) Wow. So I sure feel this way sometimes, but I just sometimes go, Lord, it takes a lot longer to really change than I ever thought it would. Do you ever have that sense? I have that sense every day. (laughs) I have that sense every day. As a young Christian, it was like, I'm just going to do some Bible study and I'm going to, you know, wait till I'm a believer 10 years or 20 years and then it's all going to be good. Uh, But again, it's reality, our reality. And that that never ends. So here's my my final question. And in many ways, you've been answering this, but through your journey of uninvited, your your three books ago, and then it's not supposed to be this way, and then forgiving what you can't forget. What have you most come to know or discover about God, this Trinitarian reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I think the thing that I have come to know most about the Lord is that we don't serve a do-nothing God. He is always doing something. And even if we can't see the immediate evidence of what he's doing, we can trust that he is there and he is doing something. And I think where I've gotten messed up before in some of the hardest parts of my journey is when God doesn't follow the script that I think a good God should follow. You know, I start making assumptions that I think that I know what a good God should do in this situation, but that is limiting our God to only what our human mind can think up. And I don't want to serve a God who's limited by my very limited thoughts. I want to know that God is good at being God and that wherever this journey goes, my job is to be obedient to God. God's job is to figure out all the hard stuff that I can't figure out. And you know me, you know, I'm a a deep thinker. I'm going to start calling myself a deep thinker rather than an overthinker. So I just want you to know I'm making progress. I like it. Even as we speak today, you know, I love to know the answers to why, why is this happening? 
I want the answer. How long is it going to last? I, I want to know what is the good outcome going to be on the other side. And I think and think and think, and then I try to write these scripts out that I think a good God should do so that it gets to the testimony that I want to live. Right. But I've just decided God doesn't want to be explained away. God wants to be invited in. And if I just invite him into today, he'll give me just enough answers that I need to be able to experience the good of today. And then tomorrow he wants to be invited in not explained away, but invited into tomorrow. And he'll give me just enough good of tomorrow so that I can sense that he's there. But where the journey takes me and where it's all going to end up, all I can say about that is God is good at being God. No human should have to carry the weight of trying to be their own God. But so many of us die trying. So, so very good words to end on. Um, Thank you for your gift of writing. Thank you for the gift of your heart. Thank you for the gift of your story that you bring to me and to the world and for your newest book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget. So appreciate you, Lisa. Thank you, Michael. I so appreciate you too. Thank you for the ministry work that you do. And I know that you didn't ask me to do this, but I will do it anyways. I think Restoring the Soul Ministries is one of the most powerful and healing organizations that people can ever, ever, ever participate in. And if you have not participated in what Michael offers through his ministry, you're really missing out. So if you need healing, Michael has so much more than just a podcast. And I just encourage you to check it out. And Michael, you can give directions on how they can check it out because I don't have the spiritual gift of announcement. So I'll let you do that part. <laughs> well, thank you. That I'm honored that you say that. And it's just been a journey uh, where it's been really a privilege to, to walk with you. But there is an overflow out of you today. We haven't talked for a while, but there's just an overflow out of you that is richness and depth. And uh, that depth is indeed how you think and how you experience God. So... Uh, I received those words. Thank you for that blessing. So take care. And I look forward to all of our listeners uh, getting a chance to dig into the book. Bless you. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn, to learn visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. <laughs>